Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to camp out today. I love the story of a mom who came to a worship service like this, and when she was done, she walked out of the church with her, uh, with her little boy, and when they went into the foyer, there was a big wooden plaque on the wall and then some little brass nameplates, and the little boy asked his mother, he says, Mommy, what are all those names? And very somberly, she said to her little boy, she says, My sweetheart, she goes, those are the people that we honor that have died in the service. And the little boy said, Was it the early service or the late service? <clears throat> Unfortunately, um, that probably represents much worship that goes on in churches in the United States. In fact, I suspect that all over the country this morning, there have been people that have gathered like this and they have come to worship, but the worship might best be described, if you will, as dead worship. And that is such a remarkable difference from the worship that I have seen in people all around the rest of the world. I've had the privilege to be with leaders in China and in Cuba and in Russia and in, uh, uh, and in Spain and in India and in Africa, and, and I've seen a worship which is a qualitatively different kind of worship than the kind of ritual that we often participate in American churches. In 2011, I uh, traveled to the country of Ethiopia, and I met a group of church leaders outside of the capital city of Addis Ababa. And this little church plant could only be, uh, you could only find it on foot, kind of hiking up a distance up into the hills. And when we came to the clearing, there was this, this little framed church stitched together with sticks and a little uh, tin roof. When you walked into the church, there was, uh, there was no electricity. There was just uh, benches that were lined up on top of the, the straw-covered uh, dirt floor. And we sat down with the church leaders, and we began to talk about how do you do ministry in Ethiopia? How is the gospel going out from your people, and how are you building the kingdom of God and making an an impact in this place? And we began to talk as church leaders. And as we were talking, one of the elders just kind of spontaneously stood to his feet, and he began to sing. Uh I just, what was going on? He began to sing. And then the other elders kind of joined with him, and pretty soon they are singing and dancing, and us, you know, white American people are just sitting there dumbfounded at this amazing joy of these people worshiping. Listen to this. I could listen to this all day long. We've got an African congregation at our church, a refugee congregation, and it's just like this. It's beautiful. And when they stopped, we actually kind of joined in with them, kind of dancing and jumping and everything. It felt completely strange, but we joined them. And I, after we stopped, I asked him, I said, i got to ask you, why do you worship as you do? In America, we don't worship like that. Why do you worship as you do? And, it, and the response of one of those elders really took me back. He said, because we have been untethered by God, we are untethered in worship. Do you understand the translation? Because we have been set free by God, we are set free in worship. 
And that elder and those Africans understand something about the essence of worship. And that is that a person whose heart is filled with delight in God dances in delightful worship before God. That's just the way it works. A heart that is filled with a delight in God dances untethered in delightful worship before God. And what I'd like to do for the next few minutes as we open up God's Word is I'd like to challenge you. I'd like to challenge your attitudes and your affections and maybe even some of your actions as they relate to what we call worship. And we're going to look at this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6. There's no other chapter in the Bible that has quite arrested my understanding of worship as this passage. And in this chapter, there are two stories that kind of come together. The first story deals with careless dancing, and the second story deals with dancing without a care. I want you to see the two stories as they come together. We begin in verse 1 where the Bible says that David, that is King David, again brought together out of Israel chosen men, about 30,000 in all, and he and all of his men set out from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are set upon the ark. So the ark was the ancient artifact, the most holy artifact of the people of Israel. It was a chest that measured about two feet by two feet by four feet long. And uh, this chest represented the presence of God among his people. The ark would be stored in the temple, but the Philistines many years uh, earlier had come in and, 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 and battled between the Israelites, had stolen their sacred relic and taken it into Philistia. And then along the way, David rose to power. They grabbed the ark back, and for 20 years, the ark had been stored in this region called Bala of Judah. So there were people living throughout Israel that had never seen the ark or been near the ark. The presence of God had not been with his people until David ascended the throne and 20 years later decided that he would take the ark from Baal of Judah and he would bring it into the capital city of Jerusalem. And so in verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new heart, on a new cart and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was up on the hill, Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. So uh, the, the ark was about nine miles away from Jerusalem, and they decided to make easy work of it, that they would take this little chest, they would put it on an ox cart, and they would guide the oxen down the hill in order to bring the ark from there to Jerusalem. Verse 5, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and with lyres and with tambourines and with sistrums and cymbals. Listen, this was a season of spiritual and national pride for the people of Israel because the ark had not been returned to the temple. It had been gone for so long. And so as the ark on this little ox cart began making its way down the hill, the parade route was filled with, with, with people on either side. There were sistrums and tambourines and drums and trumpets, and there were dancers that kind of went before the ark. Fathers stood on the parade route with their children on their shoulders to catch a glimpse of the, of the ark, the presence of God coming to his people. There were big screen TVs set out in the field because of the overflow crowds and people who couldn't get close enough. Vendors were selling matzo on a stick and people had Paraders of the Lost Ark t-shirts on. It was an unbelievable experience until the unthinkable happened. 
Notice in verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. This is something that the parade organizers had not anticipated. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's children, two sons were running alongside that ox cart, much in the way that Secret Service run alongside the president's limo. And as the ox cart came down the hill, perhaps it hit a rock, a pothole, something happened. The oxen stumbled. The ark began to teeter, and Uzzah instinctively did what he thought he should do. He reached out to steady the ark, and in that moment, human flesh came into contact with holy divinity, and he was struck dead on the spot. And I can only imagine the emotion on the parade route. It must have been a lot like the crowd in Dealey Plaza when the shots rang out, uh, killing JFK. I mean, in a second, suddenly just the shock, the whole... Listen, Uzzah died and the dancing stopped. Can we agree on that? And the question is, why? Why, Lord? Why? All these people are dancing. They're having such a great time. It's, you know... It's all in your presence. Why, God? Why, why would you do such a thing like that? And the answer, I believe, is an important principle for us to hear today. It's because they had the right God but the wrong worship. The right God but the wrong worship. You know, sometimes when we come into the presence of God, we come to the right God, but we come with the wrong worship. You go, I don't understand how it can be the wrong worship. We're here. Let me explain. There was a particular way that the ark was supposed to be transported. Exodus chapter 25 gives very specific instructions about how the ark is supposed to be moved from one place to another place. There were gold rings on the corner of the arks, on the edges of the arks, and there were poles that were specially crafted for carrying the ark. And in fact, the poles were never supposed to be separate from the ark so that you never have to go looking for the poles when it was time to move the ark. The poles were supposed to be slid through the rings of the ark, and the ark was supposed to be picked up and carried, not by a couple of farm boys, but by the Levitical tribe, the priests that were responsible for the holiness of God. But that's not what David did. David sent a couple of fraternity brothers up to Abinadab's house to get the, get the ark. And you would have thought that when these men came in and they saw this precious artifact, the presence of God... The ark that is, the Bible says, was called by the name of the Lord Almighty. The ark that represented the, the holiness and the power and the greatness of God. In fact, when, just to look at the ark visibly, there were two angels, cherub angels with their wings outstretched that were carved on top of this chest. Do you know why God created the cherub angels? The singular responsibility of the cherubim was to guard the holiness of God, the dignity of God, so that people didn't just rush in and think they can just do anything they want. And instead of treating God with the dignity that God deserves, being in awe of His holiness, being careful with the way that they treated God, they threw Him on the back of an ox cart like, like produce being carried to market. They had the right God, just the wrong worship. And I know what people think when they hear that. Listen, isn't worship just whatever I bring to God? 
I mean, I showed up. I sang a couple of songs. That one I really didn't like. That's okay. I sang most of them. I'm going to throw a tip in the basket when we're done. I'm taking notes. I came to worship. Listen, I have, a, I have a principle for you that maybe you've never thought about. Worship is what we bring to God, but worship is not whatever we bring to God. You ever thought about it that way? Worship is what we bring to God. Worship is not whatever we bring to God because worship is always on God's terms. It's never on our terms. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that you and I decided to take a tour of England, and we're in the city of London, and we've enjoyed seeing the sights. We're back at our hotel, and suddenly there's a knock on the door. The bellman comes, and he gives us a note. We open it up, and it's an invitation to see the queen. We get to see the queen. We've been invited for a face-to-face meeting with the queen. And so we doll ourselves up, and we get in our nice clothes, and men shave, you know, from here up, and women from here down, and, you know, spritz on a little perfume, a little cologne. We are so excited. A horse-drawn carriage pulls up to the front of our hotel. We get in. We're being taken to Buckingham Palace. When we arrive, the gates are there, and there's crowds in front of the gates. A lot of people who don't get to get in, but we get to get in because we've got an invitation from the queen. And the gates open up, and our horse-drawn carriage takes us, takes us the long route around the courtyard so that we can wave at all of the people and we can kind of see the sights. And then our horse-drawn carriage pulls up underneath the portico and when we come underneath that little covering, there is the queen mother standing at the top of the stairs. We cannot believe this. This is, this is a dream come true. We get to meet the queen. And so we bound out of the horse-drawn carriage. We run as fast as we can up the stairs. We grab the queen mother, and we shake her back and forth with a big bear hug and kiss her on the lips. You know what that means? That means we will be visiting you in a London prison for the next 10 years. Because that's the queen mother. And to come into her presence, you don't get to come on your terms. You come on royal terms. And hello, queen, might be what you offer, but you cannot give her whatever you want. There's protocols because of who she is, the position that she holds. And in the same way, and maybe we've never thought about this in the church, in the same way, we are coming into the presence of a God who makes the queens seem like small potatoes. We cannot afford to come into the presence of God casually, carelessly, in a cavalier way. Because we may think that what we bring to God is worship, but when in fact it's not devotion, it's actually spiritually deadly. I think that there's worship going on in the church today that is so disengaged, that is so careless, that is so... Uh, that, that, that is not careful at all about the things that we say that we do and do, that it is not that we have just not worshipped. Our worship has become unworship. Our worship has actually become an insult to the holiness of God. It's become nothing more than just careless dancing in his presence. And David realized this. David realized that he had not done what he should have done to honor the Lord. And in fact, verse 8 says that he got mad. He got mad. Now, now I don't think David was mad at God. I don't think David was mad at Uzzah, even though, by the way, Uzzah had to pay the price for David's mistake. David was mad with himself. He had this awakening where he realized 
that he had trivialized God and that he had reduced worship to something he did on his terms for God rather than something he did on God's terms. And he was incredibly grieved. So he parked the ark. He parked it at the house of Obed-Edom for three months. People wonder, I wonder what David did for three months. The ark is still waiting. They're waiting to bring it to Jerusalem. I wonder what David did. I think he pulled out a guitar, and I think he began to compose a song. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you. And then some worship leader thousands of years later picked it up and made it a hit single. But I think David realized that he had misunderstood and misappropriated worship. And then when he was ready, when his perspective was changed, his heart was changed, when he was ready, he re-engaged. Notice verse 12. So David went down, and he brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. I want you to notice the changes. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sounds of trumpets. Now, notice this time that the ark is being carried, right? It's been carried the way that it should have been carried, been carried by the priests, been carried with the sticks. That's what's that's going on. And every time that these priests take six steps with the ark, they stop, and David offers a sacrifice, a sacrifice of an atonement. Why do they offer sacrifices? A sacrifice for the holiness of God. David realized, listen, every time I take a step, I realize how small I am as a sinful human being and how great God is. We should sacrifice in order to come into his presence. And they take six more steps, and they'd go, okay, hold on just a second. We really are just sinful people. We'll offer a sacrifice. We'll come into the presence of God. Okay, we all ready? Yeah, six more steps. Okay, stop again. David's wearing a linen ephod. That is, a, that is, the, that is the clothes of a priest. David is consecrated. He is devoted to the Lord, and he is dancing with all of his might. But his dancing now isn't a careless dancing. David is dancing with full joy in the Lord. He is dancing without a care. Notice what happens in verse 16. As the ark and David and this little procession come into Jerusalem, David is leading the way and he's dancing and he's leaping and he's having the time of his life. And his wife, Michal, she watches from a window and sees her husband dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. And verse 16 says, and she despised him in her heart. She despised him. There are some people who will always have opinions about the way other people worship, won't they? Look down their nose, have an opinion, can't believe that. In fact, she says something. As soon as he comes through the front door in verse 20, she says, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. I can't believe you. Did you know people were watching you? You've got a reputation to uphold. How dare you get a little boogie in your step? Are you, you're the king. You're a white-collar professional. You can't be acting like that. 
And David's response, verse 21, you can underline this in your Bible, David's response is priceless. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Is that just a classic response? David says several things to his wife. Here's what he says. He says, first of all, uh, by the way, I wasn't dancing for you. I was dancing for God. So if you didn't like what you saw, that's not a problem with me because I wasn't dancing for you. I think the biggest challenge that we have in expressing ourselves in worship is not the problem we have with ourselves, but the problem we have of what other people might think about what we do. Raising our hands, snapping our feet, clapping, you know, crying. They just were concerned about what other people might think, right? Let me tell you, this is important. While it is valuable for us as a church to come together and worship in community, we don't worship for the community. There is power when the church comes together and we sing together and we agree together. It's kind of like an army marching forward together. But at the end of the day, we're not worshiping for one another, right? Our hearts are turned to the Lord. This is all, it's, we're keeping our faces and our heads directed heavenward and forward to who God is. And then David goes a little further. He says, listen, what you see in me what you see in me is because of what God has done for me. The reason that I dance the way that I do is because it is overflow. You see, you can either think about worship as ritual that you just do every Sunday, 168 hours passes, and every week you come to the same service and just do the same thing. You can either think about worship as ritual or you can think about it as response. Worship was always designed to be response. Let me give you a definition of worship, okay? This isn't unique with me. I, I got it from somebody else. I love this definition of worship. Worship is my response, both private and in public, to who God is and what God has done for me. That's what worship is. Worship is my response, both in private and in public, like this, based on who God is and what God has done for me. So how would you expect a person that has been rescued from death to respond? How would you expect a person that has been forgiven of everything they've done wrong to respond? How would you expect a person that has been physically healed to respond? How would you expect a person that has been loved with an everlasting love to respond? How would you expect a person that has a hope that in the future that is better than the hope of the world they live in today, how would you expect that person to respond? You would expect that person out of overflow to respond wildly with enthusiasm. There's a, there's a counter to this principle. If your worship is boring, then God is boring to you. If your worship is unenthusiastic, then God's just not that big a deal to you. If your worship is irreverent, then God is not due the respect and the honor and the glory that he's due to you. That's, that's just a reality because worship is always response. So what comes 
out of me is a direct indicator of what I think about God and what I think about what God has done for me. I wonder if all of heaven and earth are watching us participate in worship and going, yeah, they, they, they get the whole cross thing. That one, he gets the whole cross thing. Her? I'm not so sure. Boy, they, that, that guy right there, man, he is just he is overwhelmed with gratitude. He gets, he gets a God of great blessing. Her? Ah. Couldn't tell it. So worship is always a response. And then David says something else. He says something else to her. He says, listen, I wasn't worshiping for you. I was worshiping God. And, in, and, and what's going on in me is a result of what God's done for me. And then he ends. I love what he ends, how he ends the last statement. He says, listen, if you really think this is silly, you've been watching me here for a few minutes. If you think this is silly, sister, you better buckle up. Because I'm about to become more unleashed, more undignified, more unselfconscious, more unashamed because my God is more unbelievable to me. That's the way worship works. The more I engage and seek the Lord and love him and declare his worth, the more he convinces me, he persuades me of who he is, which makes me lean forward more and more in worship. So that I end up dancing, not before you, but dancing without a care. I've loved doing weddings over the 25 years of ministry. I had the privilege a year ago to, do, to perform the wedding of my oldest son. And um, we showed up for the wedding venue, and we were all exhausted before we even got there. And um, the music started, and Grant and I walked in. There's several hundred people that are attending. We walk up the aisle, and we take our, our places at the front, my boy, my oldest son, standing next to me. And each of the groomsmen and the best men come up the aisle and take their places to the left and each of the bridesmaids over to the right. And then there is a change of music. And Lane Stebbins, soon to become Lane Daniels, comes around the corner and makes her appearance. And my son, my boy, is undone. In fact, impulsively, he, I don't think he realizes he did it. Impulsively, when she makes her appearance, he goes, come on now. Come on. Bring it on. And she starts coming down the aisle. And my boy is like, there's nobody else in the room. Look at her. She is beautiful. She is absolutely lovely. Give her room to be who she is. Come on, come on. I've been waiting for this. I have set aside my whole life to love you, and I have been waiting for this moment. And he is weeping. My son is absolutely undone, and I'm weeping. I'm absolutely undone because he is undone. And as I watch my boy, I think this. That's worship. That's worship. But the lover is standing there and walks in and just catches a glimpse of his or her beloved and just goes, I get to be with you. You are all together lovely. And whatever comes out of my mouth and whatever comes out of my hands and whatever happens to my body, it's just because I am so enamored with who you are. That's worship. A heart that is filled 
with a delight for God, dances in delightful worship before God. So what do we do? I want to give you a couple of things to hang your coat on for some application here as you think about being unleashed, untethered in your worship moving forward. Four words I want to give to you. The first word is search. Search. You could also write the word seek. Seek the Lord. Every worship pastor desires to see a congregation that is engaged in worship. They like to believe that they play songs and they sing and they lead people to be engaged. But listen to this. Your worship pastor cannot engage you in worship. He can't do that. I have noticed through the years, and I think I've been guilty of it myself as well, I've noticed for the, throughout the years that many Christians in America come to church expecting the worship pastor, the song selection, and the environment to make them thirsty for Jesus. When instead, we should come thirsty for Jesus, and these guys are just going to show you where to drink. Now, come on. Those of you that have been searching out the things of God, those of you that have been seeking the things of God, boy, you've just, you've hardly been able to keep it in all week long. And now you come through the back door and you go, come on, come on, just start it up. I am ready, I am ready to worship. Do you see that? And I know sometimes I come to church, even as a pastor, I get paid to be good. Everybody else is good for nothing. I know sometimes that I come to church, and I come, and I sit down, and I go, I got nothing. I got nothing. So you know what I do? I park myself, and I go, okay, Lord, I'm going to read the text for today. I'm going to read a psalm. I'm going to ask you who you are. I'm going to start to engage with you right now so that when the music starts, God, I'm going to start seeking you and searching you out. I'm going to start looking for this God to talk to this God. I'm not just going to go on autopilot search. Do you get that? Number two is shut. Shut out distractions. Shut out temptations. Shut out comparisons. The way that I do that very simply is I close my eyes. I close my eyes. I close my eyes so that I don't look at you and form opinions about you, and I close my eyes so I don't look at you looking at me forming opinions about me. Just that's just, it just makes it a whole lot easier. And for some of you to shut out distractions and to shut out the fear of what people think, listen, some of you in the back need to come to the front so you can forget about all the people in the back. Some of you in the front might want to move to the back. Some of you need to move away from your people groups. You've been sitting in the same seat for 100 years. You're like concrete. This is my place. But you've got a kind of a community of people that are all around you, right? And you, boy, you, you've had times where you go, I kind of think I want to praise Jesus. But I, it's got all these people, and they would, they would start doing CPR on me if they saw me do something like that. So you might just need to move, change your location so that you can adjust, you can shut out the distractions and really start to be focused on the Lord. Number three. Number three is shout. Shout. That's right, shout. I tell Matt Cassidy, your pastor, that I come in and I blitz in with these sermons that kind of mess things up, and I get my car and I go home. He's got to clean up the mess when I'm gone. But you know, the word for shout in the Bible is shout. That's what it means. It means to shout. 
And it says in verse 15 that when David and the rest of them came into Jerusalem, they came in with trumpets and they were shouting. And unfortunately, so much of what the church does is shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing power and majesty. Praise to the King. Remember, worship is the overflow of what we think about God. And there should be from the people of God who have watched the work of God in their week come and say, I want to, I want to declare who God is and what God has done. Singing is not preparation. That's not why these guys, these guys were not the warm-up band for me. Singing is not, is not preparation. Singing is declaration. It is where we come as the body of Christ. Because listen, right now you have to listen. But there was a time in our worship service where you got to actually talk. And you got to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. So when we come into the presence of God and these words come up on the screen and scriptures come into our minds, we should shout. We should declare who God is and say, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and to him and through him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We should come into the presence of God and say, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Thank you, Lord. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Come into his presence with gladness. Declare who he is. Just let it rip. And then number four is surrender. Surrender. I know that I have moved from worship being about me on my terms to God on his terms when I've learned to surrender all of me in the place of worship. You ever seen a Jewish man pray? You've got an Israel trip that's planned. Those of you who've been to Israel, you ever seen a Jewish man pray? You go, what in the world? Well, there's a reason that the Jew prays this way. And it's because the Jew believes that the body should pray as well as the mind. They are engaging all of themselves. They are surrendering not just their words, but they're surrendering all of themselves to prayer. What would it look like for you and me when we sing this last song this morning if we surrendered all of ourselves? Not just speaking the syntax of sentences that appear on the screen, but we truly said, Lord, all of my body worships you. Not just my mouth, all of my body. I haven't asked Matt, but I'm pretty sure because I know your pastor. You can raise your hands here at, at Grace Covenant. You can raise your hands. It's, it's really okay. You say, well, I really don't know what that's all about. You know what the raised hands are? They're, they're, they're a declaration of surrender. You, God, or God, I'm not. I surrender all to you. That's who you are. It's okay for you to clap, to be enthusiastic once in a while. It's really okay. Okay? 
You say, well, I don't want to applaud the performers. It's not. The Bible actually talks about a, 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 an offering of applause, an offering of declaring the worth of God. It's really okay. It's okay for you to tap your foot. It's okay to move around a little bit. It's okay because in that you're going, Lord, here, you've got all of me. And in that, maybe you and I, like our Ethiopian brothers and sisters, might move just a little closer to dancing, heaven forbid, dancing without a care. A heart unleashed, a heart that delights in who God is, is filled with delight in God, worships in delightful dancing before God. So it'll never be said about us as a church, you as a church, that you had careless dancing, insignificant worship. But let it be said that you danced before the Lord without a care. Father, thank you for a church that's willing to listen to your word and to receive a truth that can sometimes be a little hard. It pushes us back on our heels, and we try to figure out, what does this really mean for me? And, and um, that, that's a tradition that I've not really been accustomed to, and, and worship for me has been maybe very formal and a bit stoic. God, would you lead your church here in Austin, Texas to be free, to be untethered, untethered in worship, because you have untethered us in life, and you have set us free. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.